Hey, Last Mile DeFi friends, Marcus here with another episode of the podcast. This time we spoke with Camila Ramos. Gami is from Colombia, but was brought up in California. This was an awesome conversation. We focused a lot on education and opportunity and the real world impact that crypto can have on people's financial lives throughout the global south, particularly in Latin America. We got the chance to explore a little bit of Kami's journey towards becoming a developer, the challenges she overcame along her computer science journey, as well as the real world utility and impact that crypto could have on people's lives. Looking a lot at the financial freedom that people can glean from crypto use cases, as well as exploring the systemic barriers that a lot of folks face when it comes to accessing developer education. I really, really enjoyed speaking to Kami's North Star, which is really driven by exploring the real world utility that crypto can have for those in Latin America, and not only researching, but also looking forward to building practical, tangible solutions. This is going to be an awesome conversation. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, we are back with another episode of the podcast. And today we're joined by Camila Ramos. Uh, really excited to have this conversation today with Camila Ramos on her journey, uh, kind of getting into crypto, and then what really drives her as far as mass adoption of crypto, particularly within the sort of DeFi ecosystem goes and her journey as a developer as well, and uh, what role education particularly plays within the crypto ecosystem. So Cami, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We've been, for the listeners, we've been friends on the internet on Twitter for like months, maybe even like close to a year at this point. And it's the first time we're seeing each other. So really excited that we finally got to schedule this and thanks for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, love how these sort of like little serendipitous relationships form and then you finally manage to connect, which always uh, makes these meeting points like uh, really special and excited to see when the IRL gathering happens. But yeah, so I guess just to kick things off, Gami, um, would love to just give listeners a bit of an introduction on yourself um, and, and your journey as the developer, you know, what sort of took you to the crypto ecosystem. Um, but yeah, let's start with sort of like the basics and, and kind of move all the way through to where you are today. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, my name is Camila Ramos. Sometimes I go by Cami, mostly in the in the kind of crypto ecosystem. And I now lead the developer relations team over at Fuel Labs. We're working on a lot of cool stuff. Um, and actually, their vision really aligns with my vision. It's one of the main reasons why I joined the org, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. But my journey started uh, back in high school, actually. I was born in Colombia, but I grew up in California in the Bay Area. And, you know, my family, we were all immigrants. So for me, it was always really important to kind of like do something with my life that was meaningful to make all the sacrifices my parents made worth it. Because for them, it wasn't easy at all. And it was something that was drilled into me at an early age, you know, just like, basically, like, you can't be a fuck up and you have to really like crush it to make everything worth it. So when I was in high school, and I was kind of deciding what I was going to do, you know, college and with my career, I thought I was going to be a teacher. I always wanted to work in kind of the education or like the social sphere. I thought maybe I would be a social worker or something like that if I didn't go down the teacher route. And the closer that I got to that, the more I started to, you know, really understand that those career paths weren't super lucrative and they were just like generally harder paths to go down. And for me, like I said, it was really important to kind of pick a career and pick a life path that would you know, give me a good life and allow me to kind of help my parents in the future. 
So just by coincidence, when I was in high school, my history teacher gave the whole class an opportunity to get extra credit if we did code.org's Hour of Code, which is this like yearly, I think it's an annual thing that they do to like a campaign to get people to try coding of all ages. And at this point, I was like 15 or 16. I was a junior in high school. And I did it just for the extra credit and I didn't think much of it. And after doing it, I was like, mm, like this is actually kind of cool. This is something I could see myself doing potentially. And the main reason was because I grew up in the Bay Area, because I grew up in Silicon Valley, I had an idea of what coding and engineering was, just like a very surface level thing. Like I knew that's all the big tech companies were here and that most of the people who worked there were engineers and that they drove Teslas and that they could afford to live here so that they made good money. But I didn't know anything really outside of that. And through that experience, it was kind of like, well, the people who do coding drive Teslas and can buy houses in the Bay. So it seems like a pretty good career path to go down. And literally that was the decision. Like there was not much more to it where I was like, okay, I'm going to be an engineer. And at first it was really hard to come to terms with because again, it felt like what I wanted to be with my life, like be a teacher, be a social worker felt very at odds with an engineer. Like they just felt like there's no, no overlap at all. How am I going to get to do what I actually love? And as I started learning about computer science and trying to take computer science at school, I went to San Leandro High School, a school with like 3,500 students. And at the time, there were only 60 seats for AP computer science. So that was kind of my first run in with access to education, specifically with computer science and how it's harder for Latino students, Black students, immigrants, basically non-white and non-Asian American students to be able to get access to this type of education. So through that, I kind of was able to like luckily find a place where they kind of interacted where it's like, okay, there's a social piece to computer science. It's not all like, you know, technology and computers. There's actually a big education and a big social justice aspect to computer science education. Um, so I ended up not getting a seat in the APCS class because there just weren't enough seats. And that's when I first kind of started, I guess, you know, what you could know me now as I'm just being super into access to computer science because of I know what it feels like to not be able to access those types of opportunities. So I ended up uh, pursuing computer science in college. I graduated with a bachelor's of science in computer science, and then I went on to be an engineer at PayPal. That was how I first started in the industry. I started off as an intern, and then I got converted to a full-time engineer. I worked on the checkout experience. And while I was at PayPal, it's actually when I first started to learn about blockchain as a technology. Because for crypto, I'd been aware of it since 2015. I, I have such a clear memory of me being on BART which for those who don't know in the Bay Area, that's like the train system, being on BART and having like a Coinbase wallet and buying my first crypto because my friend told me to. So that was back in 2015, but I didn't start learning about it from the technology side until, you know, 2020, 2021. I was part of that class that came in when it was like at an all-time high, like grades on Twitter. And at the same time, PayPal was working on their Venmo crypto wallet. So it was kind of coming at me from all angles, like from my outside of work life and then inside of work life, crypto and blockchain was becoming more and more of a thing. So I started experimenting on the side, uh, just building stuff, publishing, uh, writing about what I was learning. And eventually I landed at Edge and Node where I worked as a developer relations engineer for, you know, a couple months before joining Fuel Labs. So that was a long background, but <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Love it. Love it. No. And, and really interesting how I think oftentimes for people, it's like crypto either becomes this sort of outside of work thing or just a work thing, but cool to see that you were sort of on, on many fronts, uh, approached by the crypto ecosystem. What was it that as you, you know, became aware of the crypto sort of technology and philosophy, what was it that drew you, um, towards that and, and ultimately made you or led you towards edge and node? Um, yeah, the story of that is actually really random, but super interesting. So while I was at PayPal, I was also working on a side project that was that then turned into a business. It was a cannabis subscription service where users could get curated monthly boxes of high quality products at like a distributor price. So we're basically kind of like, let's be the Costco of weed and give people the same high quality products for a lower price because we'll cut out retail. So I was one of the two engineers working on this project and we always knew that payments was going to be a problem, but we kind of were just like, ah, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. We have so much to, to do before we get there. So we built out the application, we built out a web app, we built out the service, we built out the logistics, operations, licensing. And then once we got to the end and we're like, okay, we're ready to start having customers, let's integrate with a payment solution we understood that we couldn't integrate with any existing payment solution because although cannabis is legal in California, where I was, it's still illegal federally and all the payment services have to follow federal laws. So Stripe, PayPal, any payment service that you can think of won't accept, won't allow you to transact if you're doing business in the cannabis industry, despite it being legal in your state. So that's kind of when I first started thinking like, hmm, maybe we can integrate some crypto payment APIs so that users can pay with crypto and we can kind of circumvent that rule. So that's, that's specifically how I got into blockchain as a technologist. So just like, how can I use crypto as a technology with my application? Um, and yeah, it, like I said, it's such a random story, but it's, it's what brought me here. I love it. I love it. That seems also super fitting for like a California startup as well. Um, and I guess, so shifting towards, you mentioned quickly, you know, your vision and I'm sure obviously you, you listeners will pick up sort of along your journey, even starting from, you know, the access or lack thereof um, with AP computer science, for example, at your high school, like what, what really drives you today in the crypto ecosystem? And, and you know, what are you, you're working at Fuel Labs now, but you're also doing a lot of work in uh, ensuring that more folks have access to uh, computer science um, and a lot of that specifically to do within the crypto ecosystem. So I'm wondering if you could like paint a bit of a picture of like, you know, what, what's the North Star for you these days and, and what drives you? And I think that'll really just like open up a, a really uh, fascinating conversation as far as like, you know, how you've gotten there and challenges along the way and so on. Yeah, for me, my North Star is and always has been like getting crypto and blockchain into the hands of regular everyday people and offering an alternative to the financial infrastructure that exists today, which for tons of people around the world is exclusionary. And it's, you know, there's like shady practices and it makes people feel unsafe to the point where, you know, there's like a huge kind of sentiment of not trusting banks and not trusting institutions and government institutions because of things that have happened in the past. So for me, it's all about getting this into the hands of those people who actually need it the most. And, you know, I made a joke about this at my DevCon talk where I said, in the global West, like in the United States and in Europe, 
there really isn't a whole lot of use for crypto as it stands today, because if you live in the US or in Europe, you have access to all the financial services you want, you have access to everything you can need with really, really um, like high operational speeds, relatively low costs. There's just not much of an opportunity there. But for people in the rest of the world, and specifically, I talk a lot about Latin America, that doesn't exist. So I think that's why we see in kind of mainstream crypto, we see things like crypto dick butts and kind of these things that are jokes. But it's really because as an industry, we can't really figure out use cases. So we're kind of stuck in this quadrant of, you know, it's almost like meme, meme stuff and not really any practical use cases. So what I'm really focused on and what I'm going to focus more on this year in my work specifically is going to be around that. Like, how do we research what users actually need? And how do we build applications that can bring users into crypto that actually offer them something that they can't get anywhere else? Awesome. I love that. And and a lot of the work that I've been doing as well has been specifically that and, and looking largely at DeFi. And so for the listeners that aren't aware, you know, you're living now in, in Medellin and would love to hear more about, you know, your experience on a day to day basis as far as the challenges you faced, right, when it comes to um, the way people are engaging and, and transacting value or the access to financial products? Um, like, what have you witnessed so far in Latin America? You're from Colombia as well. So, you know, you have this very sort of lived experience of the challenges that whilst they may not be that relevant in, say, you know, the United States or Europe, in Latin America, we have a, a plethora of issues, right, um, As far that crypto could solve, right? And so I'm wondering, like, you know, on the financial front specifically, like, what have you seen in Colombia and, and where do you see crypto playing a role um, in that? in those interventions? Yeah, a few of the really interesting things that I've seen in Colombia have been, and I think this is the case for most Latin America, but I'll state it here just for listeners, is that people are mostly transacting from mobile devices. Very few people are actually, you know, transacting from laptops or PCs at home. And more so here in Colombia, there's a huge culture of you know, there's this bank here called Bancolombia, and it's one of the most popular banks. And you'll see most businesses, at least in the region that I live in, have a QR code up by the register where they won't even accept card. They'll only accept cash or a direct bank-to-bank -bank transfer using that QR code. And it's super common. Everyone does it. And it's, it's very uncommon to expect, at least that they'll accept credit card or debit card. So it's been honestly, the most interesting thing that I've seen since living here is how common that is and how they've been able to shift culture and practice in such a way. Because, you know, you would think getting a whole region of people to change how they pay would be difficult. And, and I'm sure it was. And it probably took a while. But now it's totally there. Like, it's super common. Everyone knows how to use it. It's totally expected. And it's easy to use for, for the people who live here because mostly everyone has that bank. Um also through my time in you know other parts of Latin America, specifically in Brazil, I remember they use this application called PixPay that allows users to send peer-to-peer -peer payments. So like send money to your friend like Venmo, but it also allows them to make payments directly to businesses. So it's kind of like this one-stop shop for users to be able to transact no matter what. And for me, the biggest takeaway is that you know, and I wrote about this in my article called The Dead End of Eurocentric Crypto, where I go super in-depth on this topic. But one of the main points in that article was that people in Latin America, consumers in Latin America, are already using products and, you know, behaving in such a way that shows that they're comfortable 
transacting outside of the traditional financial rails. So what does that mean? That they're comfortable using non-banks and neobanks and mobile applications to transact and that there isn't a fear or a worry of like, oh, this isn't a proper bank. I'm not going to use it. But rather, most of the people in Latin America are comfortable using these types of applications. And it's, you know, used day to day by most Colombians, at least. For sure. And I think that's where like this idea of the leapfrog hypothesis comes into play as well, where, you know, we've seen um, in, again, what what some call the global north, like we see the, the advent of banks and then we have fintechs and then there's crypto that follows that. Uh, there's this there's this gap between like the current financial situation where a substantial amount of transactions in Latin America happen in cash. And then on the other side of that, you have this, you know, trustless technology that can facilitate payments in a matter of seconds, uh, if not faster. And so the idea that we can functionally like just skip ahead all of the, you know, intermediary steps along the way, I think is super powerful. Um, and it's something that uh, I think a lot of folks are, are really looking at. And we're already seeing new bank making really big strides in that direction in Brazil, um, as well as in other parts of Latin America. We have Mercado Libre also integrating uh, some sort of incentives as well that, that run on uh, crypto rails in the background without users knowing. And, you know, I think what is, you know, another really fascinating intervention point is like the mobile first uh, use case as well. And it's something that we'll be exploring as well in another episode with, with Valora, where they're taking like, they're just saying, we're going to do a mobile only wallet, basically. And all we believe that all of your transactions specifically in Latin America are going to happen through mobile wallets. So it, the statistic uh, that I read recently is like 90% of internet usage in Latin America happens on mobile phones. Uh, and I believe that, right? Like it's super common to see people on like YouTube, for example, on their phones like all day long. And so it's no surprise on that front. And I'm super bullish on kind of the, the mobile first adoption. So um, I think I'd love to explore, you know, some of the, challenges that you've seen so far or you know I, I love that you have this like really big f emphasis on you know how, how do we bring more education to folks that aren't just in Europe or the US but you know what are the challenge that, challenges you've seen as far as more adoption of crypto in Latin America and and what can we you know do in order to address some of those those challenges um, but yeah what have you sort of heard about read about and also witnessed uh, firsthand I think the biggest challenge is probably regulation or lack of clarity in regulation. I think that's one thing that scares people away. Um, but if we're just focusing on things that are you know, maybe more within reach, it's really cliche, but it's so true. It's really just still a really big UX problem. And it's not necessarily about like the buttons and the UI, and, but it's really just about all the steps you have to go through to use crypto. So, for example, I was reading this um, kind of case study that this team in Oakland is working on my the city that I lived in most of my life back in the Bay. They are experimenting with the local currency. So the city is Oakland and their currency is Oak. And their thesis is to you know keep money in the community by having people use this currency and therefore cut out the high transaction fees that they run into when they accept cards and, and all the stuff that merchants run into. But what they found is that for example, the best wallet at this point with kind of the best user UI is Rainbow. But once you get paid in Rainbow, you then have to send the money to Coinbase to be able to cash it out. And But if you use Coinbase, Coinbase, the application where you cash out versus Coinbase wallet are two different things. So you still end up having to do like receive the money, send it, 
to another wallet and then cash out. So I think that's the biggest problem right now was that there's just too many steps and too much margin for error. Because in, in those two transactions, you could, you know, send the wrong address, you could type the wrong thing and lose all of your funds. So I think one of the biggest things that I'm learning is that we need a wallet that is, and I think Coinbase has to be the player to do it, but they need to find a better way to integrate their wallet and their kind of existing application so that users can either cash out directly from their wallet or somehow receive funds directly from the, you know, account that they're able to cash out in so that there's kind of like just a higher ease of use for people and that they don't have to think about managing multiple wallets or multiple accounts. That's one thing. Um, the other thing that I would say is just a lack of education or awareness. I think there's when pe- when I talk to people here about crypto, they they've heard of it and they maybe know a couple of things, but it's very much so in the speculation financial side where they think of it as trading tokens and trying to make money off trades and that they aren't really aware of crypto as just like a means for payment. So I think getting education to the point where consumers and merchants both know kind of the benefits and, and the fact that it exists is a missing piece that's pretty low hanging fruit. But once we get there, it'll, I think, make a huge impact. For sure, for sure. And and you mentioned that you think like Coinbase should be the ones that develop this sort of easy on and off ramp. Is that, I definitely agree, they're super well positioned to do that, say, in the States. Um, do you think that, you know, is, is a similar case, say, in Latin America? Um, you know, they're obviously like already have economies of scale, but I'm, I'm curious if you think like, should we focus on nurturing more sort of local based exchanges and folks that can facilitate sort of these on and off ramps locally um, or take the already existing sort of like really well-established, well-reputed players and say, listen, you know, this is a uh, space and a geography where you can have a, a substantial impact. Um, and, you know, here, here's the right way of approaching it. So I'm curious of like your thoughts around, should we focus on nurturing more local uh, based initiatives or, um, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I'm curious to, to get your thoughts around how, how you would think about that. Yeah, I think, I think like you said, at, at, for, at least for me, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think it would be really nice to have, you know, these big reputable players like Coinbase, you know, either make partnerships with local organizations or, you know, somehow have the network to do it themselves. Just because I think, at least for me, Coinbase has been around for such a long time. It has the trust of users and they've actually done a pretty good job of growing their ecosystem and, you know, actually being in, you know, the rooms with the right people in the government to try to pass or at least, you know, pass on information and education to the people who pass laws and make regulations. So I think having a big player like that would be really helpful. But also, you know, there's big players that exist locally. So I think really the key is just having a reputable player with the power to like the cool thing about Coinbase is that they have the money and the influence to, to like, for lack of a better term, stand up to the big guys. Like they'll go to court, they'll try to pass regulations. So I think that part is really important is that we need to have, you know, a player with that level of, you know, access to money and influence so that they can help to pass the regulation that's needed to make these things possible. For sure. Yeah, I think that the uh, the cha- regulatory challenges, I think, are huge. And and I think oftentimes, and a lot of people may not necessarily recognize this, but in Latin America, we still live in these um, 
oligarchical societies, right? Where a lot of the descendants of the colonies basically remained in power to this day in some way, shape or form. Um, and so the influence they have on regulation is often, you know, outsized. And there's like huge, huge conflicts of interest as far as new entrants um, that seek to propose new innovative solutions. But at the same time, you know, a lot of your regulatory and legal systems are captured by incumbent players, uh, which is kind of the case in all over the world. But in Latin America, I think it's even more exacerbated, exacerbated um, given the I would say a lot of different factors, but I think it is a, a really key thing to consider, right? And, and and that's where I think having the influence of a big player such as Coinbase come in and, you know, leverage economies of scale, I think is really important. And also being able to finesse things in such a way where you can work with like local institutions and already existing sort of financial uh, mechanisms to make sure, you know, it's seen as like a win-win situation for all sectors of the economy, I think is, is super important. Yeah, so so let's explore a little bit of the education front as well. Um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear more about how you, you know, from your experience, you know, even, even sort of in your younger days, and then what you've witnessed today, like, what do you see the sort of crypto education landscape looking like today who generally has access to uh, venture down the path of becoming a developer in the ecosystem um, yeah what, what what's the the lay of the land today yeah I think one thing that maybe is a misconception is that crypto as a technology or blockchain is like a whole separate field of study and that somehow the access is maybe different to traditional computer science. But I would say the foundations are very much so the same, like all the blockchain developers, you know, before they were blockchain developers were regular Web2 developers. So I think we still have the same problem of, at least in the US, that, you know, you have to go to a really good public school or you have to go to a private school and you have to live like in a, you know, affluent place to really have access to high quality computer science education. Because it could be, you know, schools can claim like we do computer science, but it's like, a lot of these schools, especially with a high population of black and brown students, they have the most entry level course and that's it. Whereas if you look at other schools in more affluent regions, they sometimes have entire computer science departments with multiple class offerings. Um, so I think generally that still stands. And I think in when you get more into the crypto related education piece, it's even more difficult just because there's just not a lot of high quality education materials out there just because it's such a new field. We, you know, just now this year, I think blockchain, I mean, Stanford has like a blockchain, uh, like a, a lot more blockchain offerings. But again, that's like Stanford, you know, that's like the peak of education, you know, you know, and it's like, those are the most affluent, most, you know, successful students and families, whereas everyone else, you know, they're probably getting, at least for me, when I went to college, I studied computer science, I had one option for an elective class that was related to blockchain. So just one and it was an elective and it wasn't super in depth at all. So, and that's, you know, taking the, the view that like, if you're going to college, you already some level of affluence and privilege. So now if you think of people who didn't go to university or who can't go to university, there's an even bigger blocker there. What I am feeling hopeful towards though, is that we have seen that with crypto, we're opening the doors for collaboration and contributions from people from all over the world with a lot less, I would say like requirements in terms of location, like we're seeing now through DAOs and, and even just through the general crypto engineering ecosystem, people can contribute from anywhere in the world. And there's 
not the same culture of, oh, we can only hire in these countries or we can only hire from these regions, but rather it's more like based on your work. And if you can do the job, then, then you can get the role. So it's kind of a give and take. Like it, I feel like it has opened up more opportunities for people around the world to work in a lucrative industry, but the education piece I think is still not there. For sure. And I think especially for, as you mentioned, right, it's like Stanford can offer a blockchain specific course, um, but, you know, Stanford isn't present in Latin America, right? Or as much as, and I'm sure this course isn't either, right? So I, I guess the question is like, what can we do in order to ensure that we have more diverse, um, and, and it, in some regards, it sort of ties back to what we were discussing earlier, as far as like, should we have these incumbent players uh, try to enter Latin America and think about sort of scaling outwardly there. But oftentimes I think what happens is the deployment just isn't done right. So even if we look at places like El Salvador, uh, where Bitcoin was essentially like the whole, uh, much of the Bitcoin development and the Chivo wallet and the policy regarding it was done by American companies um, and depends on who you ask. But a lot of people would say that like, that experiment hasn't necessarily been as successful as some might have hoped. Um, and in part, you know, I, there's an argument to be made for, well, largely that could be because there wasn't much like local, you know, context or surveying done before this happened. It was sort of like to, like overnight uh, development um, where the local community wasn't necessarily like entirely involved, right? And I think that like education and local sort of context and relationships matter a ton when it comes to thinking about, you know, how do we deploy better solutions to the current challenges in with better crypto leverage, right? And so I definitely think that like being able to take these, um, you know, devs in Latin America and say, hey, we want to train you and then think about things in a reciprocal sense of like, we'll then give you an opportunity to like, think about deploying, you know, a certain DAP or protocol in the region um, and onboard a lot more of that. And, and I have seen a few initiatives do that. And so, but what, what do you see as being like on the education front? Like how can we continue to do a specifically speak, thinking of Latin America, like what, what can we do a better job at as far as like more education for Latin Americans? Um, how does, how should we deliver that education? What does that look like? What do successful programs look like that have already popped up? Or what are you seeing on the horizon as far as more onboarding of folks into uh, the ecosystem? Yeah, I think at least specifically speaking for Colombia, there's already a bunch of schools that are public. And one thing that's really interesting about Colombia is that they have such an interesting history of, especially in Antioquia, the department that I'm in, and in Medellin, the city that I'm in, of the private sector and the government working together to generate public goods it's like really crazy but such an because it's it's a country with a history of a mostly right wing kind of leadership but they are actually super super focused on social good and public goods and they show it in many ways it's really interesting there but so with that in mind there's actually a bunch of universities and, and even like high schools that already offer programming to students which is super progressive in my mind um, so I think for me, education is just like, let's capture those students while they're younger. And because it's really not that hard, but it's like once you're older and once you're, you know, already in college, it's a lot harder to make that switch. But if you get access and exposure to that at an earlier age, you just, I think, have more opportunity to explore that and, you know, pursue that as a career path. But really, I think 
in terms of how can we, you know, set Latin America up to be successful, I think education is one part of it. But I actually think another part of it is just like a reframing of how we think of Latin America and developers in Latin America. I think right now developers in Latin America are mostly used as like cheap outsourced labor for, you know, American or European companies where they're kind of just using the devs as, yeah, like just literally cheap labor, just kind of code monkeys to just finish PRs and close tickets. But I think what I would love to see is companies who are either homegrown or, you know, foreign, but actually doing what you said, right? Like getting engineers who are from the area, who understand the local context, who understand the needs of users and can actually build something that can be used by users immediately because they have all the information and really what's needed is for them to build it. So I think those short answers just like, let's stop thinking of Latin America devs as cheap outsourced labor and let's start thinking of them in the same way that we think of developers in, you know, America or Europe where we, you know, the industry values what they say and they're considered thought leaders and et cetera, because what we've seen so far is there hasn't really been much progress made in the Western, you know, side of the world in terms of you know building applications that actually are helpful for users yeah and and you gave the examples of something like dick butts right and um it's like and and that's all well and good like i think the, the thing about the what i love about crypto is the fact that it there's room for everything um but i think we there's also room to like make a substantial difference in people's lives and um you know we've seen it in argentina we see it in venezuela we see it in being able to send remittance money from the U.S. to uh, to Central America without having to pay, you know, half of the remittance and fees, for example, right? Like th- these things, you know, have a substantial impact on people's lives. And putting more energy towards that, I think, is like crucial. Um, and I, and I think there's just like a ocean of opportunities to sort of be be gleaned uh, by doing so. And so super excited about seeing more homegrown opportunities also like flourish and emerge. Cause I, I think like no one is better positioned to develop these, uh, these types of initiatives than the people that are from the region that understand it fully and also can leverage like the already existing like infrastructure and uh, economics of scale of like some of these other bigger players that we mentioned earlier. Um, and, and just like, I think in, Funnily enough that you would mention something like Antioquia's government, right, that you said maybe has been like much more liberalized and and very sort of focused on not necessarily delivering public goods, but, you know, privatization, which is something that Latin America is also um, partly, yeah, I'd say in Latin America, we also have a a really big uh, philosophy of privatization of public infrastructure and uh, just allowing anyone who... Uh, has the right to pay for something like have the best access to different resources. So really cool to see governments focusing more on public education. Um, And I'm also really excited about sort of smaller ed tech led initiatives that are delivering education for people through mobile phones, for example, right? Initiatives like Duolingo, where you can learn any language on a mobile phone. Um, So excited to see more of of these types of things uh, develop. So yeah, I, I guess I'd We've got a few minutes left here in the conversation. Would love to touch on, you know, anything in particular that you're like really excited about the future of Latin America and crypto at the intersection of education as well that we haven't already addressed. I think we've talked about it a bit, but maybe just one thing to highlight is for me, I've been working in engineering and developer relations for like four years now. And before that I taught K to 12 computer science for like six years. So I've spent like the entirety of my career basically doing education and 
really through my experience at DevCon and everything that's come after that from me living in Colombia and in Medellin, I decided that this year, the focus for me is going to shift a bit away from, you know, being focused on the developer side to being focused more on the user side, because I think there's very few people like us where we have kind of all the little random pieces that you need to really have all of the context and knowledge to be one of those people to build that bridge where it's like, you need to have the technical information. You need to have the local context. You need to have, you know, some sort of business acumen. You need to be able to build a team. There's just so many pieces that have to come together at the same time for you, someone to be able to do this successfully. And I'm just realizing that, you know, it's easy to kind of point out the problems, but it's a lot harder to actually try to solve them. And, you know, at least for me, I think if there's anyone that is going to at least be able to, you know, give it a good shot, I would be a really good candidate for that. So, you know, I think this year people can expect to see a lot less kind of traditional DevRel and expect to see a lot more like investigative research, ethnographic research, a lot more product focused work. And, you know, really, I'm hoping that by the end, the end of the year, I, I still don't really know what yet. We're still in the research phase, but I want to be able to build something by the end of the year that I can say, look, here's an example of how you can successfully build an application with crypto that has real users and that has real value today and not in like five years or 10 years. I am so excited to see uh, what that looks like and, and where it is from that. I uh, Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the reasons why I reached out to you on and on Twitter and was like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this podcast where all the hot takes you were sort of spinning up around like, okay, we really need to d- drive more value, right? Like, let's stop focusing on like the frivolous stuff and, and really think about how do we move the needle um, and show people that like, hey, this stuff really matters. So really excited to see uh, what continues to emerge for you throughout the course of the year. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, for taking the time. So just to wrap things up, where can people find you and your work and all the Twitter hot takes as well? <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks again for having me. And I really am excited about the work that you're doing. I read the article that you published about your work through the next billion. And honestly, all of the people that were in that cohort were working on really exciting things. Yeah, like if you guys have a group chat, add me. But um, yeah, people can find me on basically every platform at Cami in this thing with an A. Um, I mostly publish things on Twitter and on Substack is where I publish like long form writing. And if you want to see more educational stuff, I haven't posted in on YouTube in a long time, but that's a lot more developer focused kind of like tutorials and all the hot takes are on Twitter and Substack. <laughs> Awesome. Love it, Kami. We'll uh, definitely get you added into the uh, to the group chat. There's a growing movement happening of, you know, Latin Americans super focused on, on crypto's impact. So excited to just continue growing this out. And um, well, thanks again for being on the podcast and we'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and joining us along this journey of discovery and exploration as we look towards the frontier of decentralized finance in Latin America. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Ethereum Foundation's Fellowship Program, Lens Protocol, and the Cello Foundation. The EF Fellowship Program is a forum for leaders who are driven by leveraging Ethereum as a public good to help billions of people coordinate and thrive. The Fellowship Program aims to support individuals who are passionate about identifying barriers to mass adoption and breaking down the barriers for underrepresented communities to access crypto. Lens Protocol is an open source tech stack for building decentralized social networking services. The protocol was developed by the Aave companies and launched on Polygon in May of 2022. 
Through Lens, Web3 developers can build decentralized social media applications and marketplaces that leverage NFT technology to form a fully composable user-owned social graph, where the connections and interactions between people are owned by individuals, users, and creators, rather than established networks. And if you're looking for a blockchain platform that's designed to work in the real world, Celo might be the solution for you. With its focus on being carbon negative, mobile first, and EVM compatible, Celo is leading the way towards a new digital economy that's accessible to everyone, particularly those in the global south. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. Let's connect on Twitter at Marcus, D-O-T-A-M, as well as on Lens, Marcus.Lens. Until next time, keep learning, exploring, growing, and I'll see you on the next episode. Ciao.